Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. A subject that's interested me for quite some time is the glorious revolution that took place in Britain. It's interested me for numerous reasons. One, because it's called the Bloodless Revolution. And two, because it, it led to the English Bill of Rights, which well, we'll find out today, but I believe had some influence on the American Bill of Rights. And here today to talk with us about that is an emeritus professor in management at, I, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Lockborough Univ <laughs> University, London. He's the editor-in-chief of the journal International Economics and president of the Darwin Club for Social Science. Jeff Hodgson, welcome to the program. Thanks, Michael. Well, it's good to sit, sit, talk to you today. So I figure we could probably set the stage a, a little bit before we get to the events of 1688. Take us back a little bit to the, the death of Charles I in sort of what came after that with Oliver Cromwell and then the Restoration. Okay, well, I mean, the, the, the 17th century, the 1600s, a very interesting period in England. Um, a turbulent period also, because you've mentioned the death of Charles I. He was executed um, in, in 1649. This was um, at, at the end of the, what's called the First Civil War. Um, the, the Britain was divided by internal warfare between the parliamentarians who wanted to defend parliamentary privilege and, and the monarchists, the king's royalist troops. Eventually, with Scottish help, the parliamentarians won. Eventually, Charles I, the king, was captured and executed in 1649. That led to a period called the Protectorate. It's the only period in British history when we've been a republic. Um, the, the Americans covered us later, but um, so without a king, uh, and Cro Cromwell became what's called the Lord Protector. And then the monarchy was restored in 1660, and what's called the Restoration. And the son of Charles I, that's Charles II, became the monarch. And then he was succeeded by James II, which I will talk about eventually, because James II was on the throne in 1688. So the 1600s were a very turbulent period. You had the Civil War, which was quite devastating. And then you had uh, 1688, which we'll talk about. And, and these events, these two events were crucial in British history and English history, le leading to major changes. We had an industrial revolution in uh, the 1700s and the 18th century, uh, led, led the world in manufacturing industry at that time. And so a lot of historians have wondered about the connection between these things. So James II, if my history is correct, was the first English monarch who was a Catholic, I believe, since Mary Tudor. Yes, I, I, he didn't publicize the fact that he was a Catholic, but he was sort of doctrinally sliding in that direction. He was appointing uh, Catholic uh, nobles to positions of power in his government and in the armed forces and so on. And they, a lot of the population uh, from top to bottom who had a Protestant tradition by then were very upset about this. And so the basic... Uh, spark to a lot of these developments in the latter half of the 17th century were, were religious in motivation between Protestants and Catholic. But the Protestantism had been well established 
uh, in Britain since Henry VIII in the 1500s, uh, the Restoration in the 1530s, and a lot of the population were already Protestant. So uh, the Catholics were a minority, and the uh, concern by the Protestants was there would be a Catholic, a full Catholic restoration. And this was the big worry and the big division. And there had been a, a, a revolt just before 1688 and 1685, where the Earl of Monmouth tried to seize power. He was defeated uh, in, in Somerset in a battle called Sedgemoor. Uh, brutally defeated, the army didn't get very far at all. Uh, a lot of people killed, and there were bloody reprisals and uh, punishments after that uh, defeat. Now, what were the declaration declarations of indulgence that James II issued? Uh, the, these, these were um, ostensibly elements of religious toleration. In other words, he, rather than declaring himself openly as a Catholic, being honest about his, 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 his feelings, he said, I want to uh, allow Catholics more rights, which sounds a progressive thing. I mean, today we would say, well, good, good on him. He's, he's a sort of a, a tolerant guy. But this was really a... a, a at least perceived as a, a way of sliding backwards into Catholicism by the Protestant majority. So the concern then was was a, a, that 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 movement of opinion. It was very complicated because officially, since Henry VIII's, the monarch was the head of the Church of England, and so the Church of England was Protestant after from Henry VIII onwards. So James II was nominally head of the Protestant Church of England community. But also by that time, and largely because of the Civil War, which I mentioned earlier, in the 1640s, there were also dissident groups, there were dissident Protestants. So it's quite complicated. So there are two sets of people being persecuted. One lot were the, were the Catholics, because they were discriminated, they weren't allowed uh, positions of power, except James II was probably going to do that. And also the, the nonconformists. And you know, the famous Plymouth Brethren, who left England in the early 1600s, were left and, and established themselves in the United States, or in America, which is now called the United States, and Massachusetts, as a result of being persecuted, as a result of not having full rights as citizens because of their religion. Uh, and so toleration seemed a good thing, but actually it was a device by James II to get to bring the country back to Catholicism. In addition to religion, what other issues were going on, both domestically and in foreign affairs, that kind of led to the tumult before the revolution, the glorious That's revolution? Important, an important question. I'll, I'll deal with both parts of that. I mean, domestically... Um, you, you had big changes going on, despite these huge political disruptions in the 1600s. You had some changes going on, which were developing, slowly developing the economy. Uh, it was nothing like uh, uh, Chinese economic growth in, in recent recent periods, just, you know, mass, massive percentage increases. It was gradual development and small pockets of industrialization. And there was a kind of a spectrum of opinion, including people who wanted to liberalize the economy, who wanted um, um, freer markets, they wanted, wanted uh, uh, more opportunities for entrepreneurs, less restrictions on trade and so on. And that was an important element of what you might call economic liberalism 
going on right early on in the 1600s. I mean, Walter Rowley published uh, material making such these arguments, and uh, Francis Bacon and other great, great thinkers were thinking along these lines very early. So that, so that pressure for economic liberalization was an undertone right through this period, and right through the 1700s too. Now, internationally, it's also very important. It's, it, these events didn't occur in isolation. So if we take the 1600s, the, the uh, um, 17th century, uh, Britain was more or less, most of the time, aligned with France and Spain, which is rather surprising because they're both, they were both Catholic states at the time. Uh, Spain had a huge empire, France was a big power in Europe, and both were Catholic, okay? Um, which meant that during the, the, the 1600s, there were several wars of England and Britain against the Dutch, who were another rising imperial power, but were, whom were Protestant in, in, their, in their belief. So that is quite uh, uh, an unusual alignments occurring. 1688 changed that radically. Um, if, if I could, and this is the reason why William of Orange uh, came over. If I can talk about that now, uh, the international position is actually quite important. William of Orange was technically invited. Okay, so a lot of historians say, well, it wasn't really an invasion <laughs> because William of Orange just came over. He had a letter of invitation and he waved it and he he came in. Um, uh, the, he asked for it because he wanted a legitimation. He wanted a bit of political spin. He put on his huge invasion, which involved hundreds of ships, uh, tens of thousands of troops. It was a big, big event. Well, hold on and one second. Who was William of Orange? In, in William of Orange was was a prince in in the, in the Low Countries, in in the United uh, Provinces, or they called call him Dutch. The Netherlands all mean more or less the same thing. Okay, so and and that was a that was a part of Europe uh, across the North Sea. Which rebelled against uh, Spanish domination, Habsburg domination, and became an independent Protestant state. So when England was being Protestant under Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, they were they, they were, were were partly allied for a while with this incipient new Protestant state in Europe. But that state was under threat by the by the 1680s. It was under threat from. Uh, French forces, which nearly overwhelmed the United Provinces, the Low Countries in in sixteen eighties, and there was concern about a major re return of Catholic forces in Europe to dominate Europe, and James the Second in England sliding towards Catholicism was part of that worry by the Protestant part of the community. So the invasion which occurred in 1688, which became called the Glorious Revolution, was partly was strongly for international reasons for William of Orange. William Orange led it and brought the army over and, and, and his ships over, did it because he wanted to save his own country. So it, was, it wasn't a colonial invasion, making there was no attempt or declaration to make England a Dutch colony, but it was more an attempt at regime change. They wanted a regime change where there was a more solid Protestant monarch buttressing 
the cause of Protestantism against Catholicism in Europe. Okay, now William of Orange, in addition to being this Dutch prince, is also the nephew of James II and the husband of James II's daughter, Mary. What role does that play in the fact that he was invited? I mean, they, they, you know, they weren't inviting Louis the Fourteenth, for in, <laughs> for instance. They they specifically yeah. invite William and Mary. Why? Um, well, the, those connections are very important, Michael. Um, and it is part of the story we see all over Europe of intermarriage, strategic intermarriage between di different dynastic groups. So, so this relatedness to the Stuart dynasty in England is important. By the Stuart dynasty, we mean the line of monarchs that were established in Britain from James I after the death of Elizabeth I in the early 1600s, and which ran through uh, and up to 1688. So, the, the, so these have been around for that period, uh, and and the. The Stuart uh, legacy, the Stuart dynastic claim, was very important, and that's and I don't know if it's an accident or it was by design, but he, he married this, uh, Mary, who was also a Stuart, and had this blood connection with that line, and this this gave the invasion stronger legitimacy. Um, if, um, and if James II could be deposed as a Stuart. There was another Stuart, the wife of Hen of William of Orange, ready and waiting to become queen as well and to preserve elements of that Stuart succession. So that William was a very powerful figure and, and leader within the Dutch United Provinces, which was not a monarchy, but um, uh, had a, a, a secular elements as well. There were, uh, there were times when it did become royalist, but that's a complicated story. So the, this Stuart connection was very important, and it gave uh, William another boost to his credibility coming into the country. But Mary Stuart, his wife, was a Protestant. She wasn't Catholic. So you refer to it as an invasion, but it's also been called the Bloodless Revolution. But there was also fighting taking place in Ireland. What is the, the real nature of this invasion, of this revolution? Okay, well, it, it's, it, um, it's not exactly bloodless, even on English soil. Um, there were no big set battles, but there were skirmishes in which people died. So a few people died. There was a fairly big skirmish in Reading, which is a, a, a town ju just west of London. So that was cr a crucial part in the uh, invasion process. Um, so some people did die. It wasn't exactly bloodless. And of course, in Ireland, you referred to uh, the Irish part of the story, which is later on, 1690, two years later, there was a big battle, the Battle of the Boyne, which is celebrated by Protestants in Northern Ireland to this day. It's an important turning point. Okay, getting back to what happened. So you had um, uh, William very much concerned about the threat by the French on his southern border. The French were actually temporarily occupied with a little war in Italy. So he said, oh, I'm going to seize this opportunity in late 1688 to come over to England with my forces, with this letter of invitation I have from some nobles 
to to arrive and uh, not seize power. He wanted to help the Protestants change things. And he didn't declare, neither did the latter invite him to become king. That's what eventually happened. But So he, he wanted regime change, to repeat my point. That, that was the key point. He wanted a, a firm Protestant uh, system in Britain with a Protestant monarch, a committed Protestant monarch, to help the Dutch defend themselves against the French. He landed uh, in Torbay, which is in the southwest of England. It's a, where Torquay is. It's a holiday resort these, these days. It's called the English Riviera. It doesn't look very sunny at the moment, but uh, that's where it is. And Torbay was a convenient location because it gave him access to the southwest peninsula, Devon and Cornwall. You look on the map, it's the, the southwest bit of, bit of England. He disembarked his army and moved towards Exeter. And, and, and when he was there, he seized Exeter, he stayed there for, for some time, and he was waiting for Protestant nobles and gentry to go over to his side. He had to wait for a while, but eventually things bubbled up. There were uh, um, Protestant uh, forces assembling in parts of England, and some came over to William. Meanwhile, James II had his army, the, the Royalist led army, which assembled on Salisbury Plain. Salisbury Plain is famous for Stonehenge. It's an elevated area, fairly flat, but it's elevated and has a beautiful old Stonehenge on it. So you, you'll be familiar with that. And that's the area which is still used for military purposes these days, where James II assembled his army. And then William, with further support, moves his army, very big army, tens of thousands, towards London, towards Salisbury Plain, and onwards towards London. And by the time he moves close to Salisbury Plain, elements of the British Army, the English Army, start defecting. Okay? That they're concerned. So you had one of Churchill's ancestors, Winston Churchill's ancestor, leading a unit in, in, in this army and defecting to William's side because this was a big going to be a big contest between Catholic forces and Protestant forces, and a lot of people were Protestant on the king's side, so they moved over. And so the army dispersed. There were a few skirmishes, as I mentioned earlier, so it was not bloodless. A few people were killed, but eventually the Dutch army arrives in London and seizes power. Now, um, the first thing that they do is actually install a uh, a, a instruction that the, any English troops must stay out of the capital. So if you don't believe it's an invasion, just to take this point in mind, the English troops were asked to leave London and stay more than 20 miles away. Um, to prevent any problem with, with uh, dis dissident English troops coming back against Wellington. And it did that very, very cleverly and seized control of the city. So, um, but in the, in the meantime, James II had fled. He originally fled to France. And then late, later, uh, he returns back to Ireland, which I'll come back to. But William sees his power. And then what he does is call a parliament. So he's not a dictator. He's not sort of uh, trying to seize control himself. He calls a parliament. And, and parliament hadn't sat for uh, several years, for three years, uh, since since the rebellion I mentioned earlier in 1685. 
So this is a big thing because okay, uh, hold on one second. I want to I want to ask you a question sure. about the parliament yeah, because yeah. this is sort of a tactic that was employed many times by British monarchs, right? Is that they don't call parliament because they're afraid of what parliament might do. And I think they call it a summon. They summon parliament. Maybe that's not the there's a word for it. I can't remember. But so that's a tactic that that's been employed throughout British history, right? Where they do this. Absolutely. The parliamentary okay. system is gradually becoming more important. You're absolutely right. One of the big complaints against, for, for Democrats, people who supported the parliamentary system, was the constant habit of the monarch to, to, to suspend parliament. And, and there were constant attempts to try and get parliament fixed as a more permanent body. In other words, to prevent the king, whoever he or she may be, removing, uh, closing parliament and ruling without parliamentary checks and balances. Now, that had been a complaint for hundreds of years, for 150 years or so. And um, and there were constant attempts to deal with this. So, there was one in the early 1600s with Charles I, uh, and, and sorry, James I, and, and then uh, again with Charles I, and then uh, later on with James II. So it's very, very important. The William calls Parliament, so recalls it, and they hold elections. And Parliament then has two big problems. One is to try and again address this issue of preventing the monarch closing down Parliament, so keeping Parliament as a semi-permanent entity functioning alongside the monarch. That's the first problem. The second problem is who's to be king. James II... Uh, has has left uh, and fled the country, gone to France. So who's going to be monarch? So they find a legal pretext for saying, well, James II has abandoned his country, he's abandoned his people, therefore he's abandoned his duty as a monarch, therefore we declare him deposed. Okay, so that's the first legal uh, legal trick that they, they employ. Yeah, he didn't actually abdicate. He left no, and he they didn't. said, okay. No, certainly not. He said, I'm your rightful king, even though he's in France. He was <laughs> shouting that across the channel. Um, no, so he was deposed by Parliament enacting a law saying that he'd abandoned his people. Okay, who did they think that then should be the monarch? First choice was Mary, who was a steward, who was related. So it wasn't William and Mary. And then William thought he, he should have a bigger say in these matters. But they ended up with a, a solution. We have a dual monarchy. So you you have a king and a queen lots of times, but they don't reign with equal rights. So this but this time it became the, the kingdom of William and Mary. William and Mary were the monarchs, joint monarchy. That didn't last because Mary died a few, a few years later, but that was the initial and resolved solution that parliament uh, uh, developed to, to deal with that. Um, the, the issue of how they dealt with um, parliament recall was very interesting because they enacted a number of things which limited the powers of the monarch over the army. Um, in other words, the king was obliged by law, by the laws they were just passing, to um, call parliament if he needed to use the army in a, in a war. So 
they made the king reliant on parliament for military purposes. They also passed thing, something called the Bill of Rights. We're now in 1689 because the invasion occurred in November 1688 and parliament wasn't called until early 1689. And the, 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 the passing of the Bill of Rights. Now, some people say this is extremely important. It was important because it was a, a clear declaration of uh, rights, individual rights and uh, people's rights, reaffirming uh, several that have been around for some time, including from the Magna Carta. But actually, there was nothing much new in it. There's nothing much new because it, there were rights which already had been established and then taken away by various monarchs. And this was a complaint by uh, those critics of the monarchy during the sixth, whole of the 16th century, which led to the Civil War earlier. The monarch is taking away our rights, okay? rights which already have been declared by Parliament. So they re were reaffirming old, old rights or old claims to rights. So that's quite important because some, some people, including Douglas North, I think rather exaggerated the, uh, the radicalism of the, or the novelty of the legislation which was which took place, but it, but it's an important milestone. The Bill of Rights, which occurred at that point, uh, um, and uh, it, it it did inspire the Americans. Uh, it became an important document, uh, in, and a lot of the rights that you take for granted in the U.S. Uh, originate from this period and earlier precedent. So you point out that correctly. So, so what are some of the provisions of the English Bill of Rights? Okay, I mean, it, it's um, about individual liberties. It's about um, things like habeas corpus. In other words, if you are arrested and uh, for, for on, on something, you have to be charged and you have to go through due process. You can't be just just uh, holed up in jail or some dungeon indefinitely. So that's uh, a key part of a modern constitution is the right of individuals to go through due process. If, if they're being held, they have to be charged and they have to go through the appropriate procedures. There's, there's also uh, um, rights to own property, uh, rights to uh, uh, dispose of that property, which are complicated because law of property is not a simple thing. And and uh, and there's also rights, uh, limitations on the power of the monarchy. In other words, the monarch um, has to, to uh, tax with the broad consent of Parliament, if Parliament opposes certain taxations, then they're nullified by parliamentary uh, action. So it's elements like that which are very important, which we take, take for granted these days in, in a democratic system. But they, there was a struggle to get these well established. As I said, these already had been fought for before, then removed and then reestablished. They have a, there, there's a, something in there for freedom of speech as well, right? Am, yeah, am I mistaken? Yeah. That, that's right. That, um, it's uh, rather qualified because uh, there, there were restrictions on freedom of speech, and also there was still discrimination on religious grounds. It didn't remove that. The, that the removal of uh, religious discrimination, the freedom of worship, whatever uh, peaceful worship you want to carry out, took long to be well, well established in Britain. It took until the 19th century. For, for discriminatory laws against Catholics to be uh, to be removed. So the elements were there about freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, uh, and, and so on. 
but they were not fully developed at the time. Okay, who is John Locke, and what, if any, role does he play in these events? Well, he, uh, John Locke is a major English or British philosopher, and um, forget his days exactly, but um, he, he was actually on one of the boats that came with William of Orange from the Netherlands over to Torbay and into England and arriving in London. The reason why he came over with William was because he was exiled because of his views. I mean, he, if you read his stuff, I'm sure you've read some of John Locke's material, his treatise on government and so on. He, he doesn't sound very, very radical in these today's terms, but he was making sense of um, early modern constitutional and philosophical groundings for a, 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 a more liberal, free-thinking society. Uh, and um, he was a champion of, of rights. He, he believed in systems of rights, including rights of property. And he uh, argued on the basis of those rights. He's, he's ex extremely important as an early Enlightenment thinker, um, asserting certain important freedoms and limitations on absolute monarchy. That's that's one probably the reason why he was exiled was that he said that kings do not have complete rights. They don't have rights to do anything. They are morally and politically circumscribed or limited by other considerations, including the well-being of the population. And if the well-being of the population, the population is threatened and they people think they're being uh, their rights are being removed or transgressed by the monarch, then there is a right of revolution, a right to challenge that. And that's, again, very important in our shared histories. Well, that brings me to my next point is what is the lasting legacy of the the glorious revolution, the English Bill of Rights, both on, on America and beyond? Yeah, well, I mean, undoubtedly, it made a huge impact on uh, the, the American Revolution, uh, which occurred in the uh, 1700s. Um, but this kind of thinking was not just uh, found in America. This this kind of what we might call liberal, liberal democratic um, rights of man style thinking was 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 very important uh, in Britain too. For example, Thomas Paine, who played an important part in the American Revolution was an Englishman and also uh, participated in the French Revolution and very important thinker. And there's one example among several of these Enlightenment thinkers who laid down principles of a free society and a, a free community. So that, that's one thing. It was a step in that direction. Um, we then have to th consider the counterfactual. If it hadn't have happened, what would have happened instead? Well, Britain may have slid back into Catholicism, become more conservative in its views, um, but changes could have happened later on. I mean, those, these are the great what-ifs of history, and we can spend a lot of time thinking about those. But what did happen was this big radical change, which fundamentally shifted the balance of power between the monarchy and, and parliament. So you had this, this alteration with a more permanent role for Parliament thereafter, and that, that was the issue was fixed. Now, Douglas North and Weingast in their article on uh, the Glorious Revolution 1688 
make that point, and they're absolutely right about that. That, that was crucial. It's this constitutional shift, um, de facto, not so much legislation, but de facto, um, creating a more constitutional monarchy, limiting the powers of the monarch, which was permanent thereafter. That's the first thing. The second thing is the big puzzle. I mean, I'm trained as an economist, so this is the puzzle that myself and Douglas North and others have been grappling with for many, many years. And that is, was there a connection between 1688 and the Industrial Revolution? The Industrial Revolution was this big burst of uh, innovation and activity, the steam engine, James Watt, uh, mills, cotton industry, importing cotton from from the United States, um, slave plantations and so on. Um, growth of trade, growth of British Empire, growth of this big trading zone around the world. Um, did, did this, was there a connection? I think there was, but it's not the way that Douglas North argued it. Uh, Douglas North said it was a security of property rights of matter, but I think that arguments shot through with problems because property rights were already secure to a great degree before. What happened is that Britain became a war economy. With this switch of alliances, uh, then England was no longer allied after 1688 with France and Spain, as it had been for most of a century or more before. It was now allied with the Dutch against two big powers, France and Spain. And this led to almost a continuous war until the defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo in 1815, 120-odd years of more or less continuous war. There were element, times of peace in between, but Britain became a war economy. So now you had Parliament and the monarch on the same side, with subsequent monarchs too, Facing, facing an external threat of war, largely from France or Spain. So he had, he had a succession of wars. And he also had internal problems. Um, he had the, 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 uh, the attempts by the Jacobites, the Stuarts, to restore the Stuart monarchy. So he had the rebellions in Scotland, 1715, 1745. Battle of Culloden defeated them in 1746. These are important internal events, and they also required an army. So what happened was to fund an army for a more or less continuous period of war, lasting more than a century, you required a reformed state administration. You also required a reformed financial system. So you have what are called by historians the financial revolution. Bank of England, founded in uh, 1694 growth of banks, London becoming an important financial centre, and so on and so forth, and also an administrative uh, revolution in the state to get together and administer the resources needed to fight a succession of wars with other countries. And this stimulated the Industrial Revolution. In my book, The Wealth of a Nation, which was published last year, I explain why, why this happened. There were key changes in the financial system, including, for example, big reforms of commercial law, which occurred in the 1750s, which prepared the ground for industrialization and uh, faster economic growth and the transformation of Britain into the first 
a manufacturing and industrial nation. Okay, so you, uh, I agree that you know these rights were already understood by Englishmen, by and large, prior to Locke. But doesn't the sort of codification of these things through the writings of Locke and the, the English Bill of Rights, and you know later Enlightenment thinkers, Adam Smith, for instance, once the people start to understand more broadly that they have rights and, and once rights are, are more secure, doesn't that help spur economic growth? I, I'm reminded of, of a line. I watched this miniseries on a masterpiece theater. It was Victoria and it, it's probably, you know, apocryphal, but she talks to Lord Melbourne and she says she wants Albert, her husband to be made King. She says, why don't they declare him King? And, Lord Melbourne says to her, well, if the people get it into their heads that they can make monarchs, they're going to get it into their heads that they can unmake them as well. And the point being that once people understand their power, you know, their rights, their authorities, that they're going to behave differently. And the reason that I'm skeptical about the idea that it was just a wartime economy that, that caused these things is the greatest period of economic growth came in the 1800s which was after 1815 and the, the surrender of Napoleon was one of the most peaceful periods in the, in the history of the world. What it was though, was the unleashing of these ideas with the, with the, you know, the advent of America. So are you, are you saying that there's no connection between the ideas of the enlightenment and the industrial revolution that it was all no, just I'm war? Not okay. No, I'm okay. not saying that at all. Um, okay. The, the, the idea is that I agree with what you said. The, the ideas are very important. Uh, I mean, for example, industrialization requires science. Right? Now, you can't have science if you have an oppressive right. system, including religion and, and the state, censoring what you can say. Uh, Galileo, for example, in Italy, the famous Italian uh, thinker, physicist, modern uh, scientist, was threatened with torture for, by the church, by the Spanish, by the Inquisition, for for suggesting that the Earth was not the center of the universe. Now, that's not very good for science. I mean, scientists <laughs> have to say, well, you know, even if the idea is wrong, they have to say, well, I conjecture this, or perhaps it works that way, or perhaps it's because of that. And some of these ideas may seem crazy, but but uh, science has to work that way. So at least you know, for communities of science, you do require some freedom of speech. And people not being threatened by by some absolute authority with torture for saying something which goes against religious uh, doctrine. And religious doctrine also has its own freedoms, but scientists too, alongside them, have to have to have freedoms. So that's important. Um, um, so, yeah, uh, and, and these ideas were crucial. But the, the reason why ideas are not the only things that matter, uh, several reasons here. One one reason is that. At the time, um, Britain was not very democratic. I mean, it's only less than 5% of the population or the male population had the vote. Women and others didn't have the vote at all until the 20th century. But among males, it was less than 5% had the vote. You had to be a landowner, you had to own land to, to have the vote. And the number of people who owned land was very small. And, th and this persisted well into the 19th century. So it wasn't that democratic. Uh, uh, the, the legal system up to uh, the late 1700s 
was very corrupt. You just bri bribe judges. Um, I mean, it, it, uh, stuff that we've known happens in other countries uh, even today, but that was commonplace in, in, in Britain of 1700s. So to bribe your judge, read Samuel Pepys' diaries. I mean, he was a government official and he was constantly dealing with bribery. And he had his, uh, he was up to his armpits in the same corruption. Um, uh, uh, so it, it, it was not a particularly uh, well run or, or, or doctrinally. Uh, 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 pure system. It was full of uh, autocracy and corruption. Um, also, we had slavery. Um, a lot of the uh, impetus for growth, I mentioned the cotton industry and the uh, growth of cotton and other commodities like sugar in in the Western Hemisphere, in, 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 the, in the Caribbean, uh, in, in the West Indies, and also in the southern states of the U.S., this is very important, and, and it's part of your history too, de dealing with that uh, problem of slavery. So that's not particularly liberal to have an empire where sl slavery is, is still important. The British, of course, um, eventually abolished slavery um, ahead of the US. But uh, at the time I'm talking about, which, which the Industrial Revolution, slavery was still there. It was opposed, but it was still there. So it's not particularly uh, free or li liberal society at the time. and it took us a long time to develop that. I agree with you that the big acceleration in economic growth came in the 19th century. So what I'm arguing is that there were certain institutional conditions which were stimulated by free um, market liberal ideas, uh, ideas of entrepreneurship, individual autonomy, and so on. Those were important right through. And um, I, I do not under, underestimate their importance. Okay. Is there anything that I didn't ask about the the glorious revolution that I should have? But before, well, I mean, before we close uh, the discussion, your, question, your questions have been fantastic. It's bottom on, Michael. I, 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 it's a hugely fascinating area. I mean, it's fascinating intrinsically in itself as a story, as, as, and it's also interesting that uh, um, in Britain today, people don't talk about it as an invasion. Um, I, I I went to a, a pub quiz a few years ago, um, a local pub, um, and and uh, the question was when when was the last invasion of England? And I, I wrote down 1688 with my team. I said 1688, and and uh, the answers I marked and they said it was 1066. It was it was William the Conqueror, and 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 I said excuse me, excuse me, England, of course. <laughs> I, I had a little protest myself, and the, the the chair of the quiz actually awarded me the point. But uh, we don't think of it as an invasion because we have this uh, little fabrication of a letter of invitation, and um, which is which is just just a bit of propaganda spin. Yeah, uh, it's an important thing, and it's an important uh, event in itself. It's a fascinating period. And then you have these big explanatory questions. And again, this is the economist in me speaking here. You know, why did these things happen? Why did de economic development, which is very, very important for human welfare, for human health, human freedom, human living longevity, all these things start in this way, in this place? And because if you have some answers to those questions, you, you can... You can look at other countries which are developing, like in Africa or in Asia, South America, and so on, 
and say, well, you know, the, the things that you might take into account, learning from history and other countries that developed first, of course, the, the circumstances are always very different, but we can learn lessons from history. I mean, history is very, very important, and economic history in particular is a very important for economists to understand the problems that we face in the world today. Okay, where can people find you and where can they find your book? I mean, do you have a blog? Do you have a website or something? I know you have the book, so tell them where to find you and, and the book. Well, thanks, Michael. I'm, I'm, yeah, the book's called The Wealth of a Nation. I'm the author, published by Princeton University Press last year. It's just been out a few months. Find my website. You can Google my name, jeffreymhodgson.uk. So all one, no spaces. You'll find my website, which has got all my books and my articles. You can also download there my article in 1688, which is in the Journal of Institutional Economics, which I edit. That was published in commemoration of North's work a few years ago. So if I'm on my website, you can find that stuff. I also have links to blogs there on various things, uh, academic and non-academic. I worry about the world, so I occasionally blog about my worries. So there they are. <laughs> so um, it's, it's great to talk to you about these things. Thank you so much for joining us today. For now, this is the Rational Egoist signing out. I'm Michael Leibowitz. Remember, leave your comments, leave your likes, let us know what's going on. It's helpful. Till next time.